Well, a very good evening to you all here at the LSE this evening um, uh, for a lecture titled Economy Beyond Economics, Time for a Paradigm Shift. Um, this is part of, this is one uh, uh, lecture in a, part, in a series of lectures titled Sustainability in Practice, where we are bringing to um, the LSE a number of practitioners who have pioneered certain uh, uh, aspects of sustainability. And they're going to be coming along and talking about their experiences, um, their ideas and their um, thoughts, and also um, posing some of the challenges which we are all going to face in living in a more sustainable world in the future. Um, so this is the first of one of uh, a series of three lectures. Um, my name's Martin Bolton, uh, and I'm the chair for this evening. My role at the LSE is uh, Head of Sustainability, um, a grand title. Um, and so the LSE is not uh, solely about delivering excellence in teaching and research uh, into the cause of things, but it's also about putting things into practice as well. And my role at the LSE is to lead the LSE uh, to become a more sustainable organisation. Uh, we are doing that by reducing our carbon emissions, by looking at our buildings uh, and increasing the energy efficiency of our buildings, uh, by deploying renewable energies on the estate, and also by reducing, um, reusing and recycling our waste. Uh, even to the extent that we're increasing the ecology of the urban estate. And I have some living proof here. Uh, and I can hold up a, uh, one of the 200 jars of honey which were produced here in the central London on the LSE estate. Um, so we are doing lots at the school to transition the school into a more sustainable building, uh, estate. And I'd welcome you to learn more about what we're doing uh, by looking at the sustainability pages on, uh, on the website, the LSE website. Um, before we uh, go any further, I just want to do some housekeeping rules. For those of you, uh, for those tweeters of you, the hashtag here is uh, for this, this lecture is LSE Green Economy. Um, if you have uh, phones, can you please switch them off or put them on to silent? Um, and that the lecture is being recorded as well, so you will be able to uh, listen to the lecture again. There will be some book sales later on, and I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, the lecture is going to last for about 30 minutes, and then we've got 30 to 45 minutes for questions as well, so there's quite a bit of participation involved, if that's what you like. So, um, now time to introduce uh, the lecture for this evening. Uh, as a... As a uh, as a very much a fan of the, the magazine Resurgence, it's a, it's a real pleasure uh, and an honour to, to introduce uh, Satish Kumar, who's uh, our, our speaker for this evening. Um, he probably needs little introduction because he's a he's very well-known and sought-after speaker on an international basis. Um, and he can, what he brings to the, to the room and to his lectures is a, is a depth of understanding and, and wealth of experience in, in the topics he's going to talk to to you about tonight. Um, Sajid spent uh, nine years as, as a monk in his early life uh, uh, and then in his early 20s set off on a mammoth uh, 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 journey of 8,000 miles uh, from India uh, to America, going through Moscow and Paris and London uh, as part of a peace pilgrimage. Um, he took no money with him. He took no food with him. 
So if there are any students here looking for gap year ideas, I'm sure you can give you some advice. Um, the whole purpose of the, uh, uh, the, the pilgrimage was to take a, a peace uh, package of peace tea to the... Uh, the, uh, the four <coughs> nuclear powers of the world. Um, and that, that kind of set uh, where Satish uh, sat in terms of becoming a, more of a figurehead for the peace and environmental movement in the early 70s. But he didn't stop there. He went on further to do a, a second pilgrimage of a, a mere 2,000 miles across the UK. Um, he is, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, the editor of Resurgence, now Resurgence and Ecologist magazine, and has been for 30 years. Uh, he has uh, a numerous honorary doctorates. Um, He's established the internationally renowned Schumacher College, which I'm sure you've already heard of. He's authored several books, uh, of which No Destination is going to be released very soon. We have copies here for you to look at and also purchase later on this evening. Uh, he's a television presenter. He's been on the radio. He's in demand as a, as a media commentator. Um, and he also sits on various boards, uh, including vice president of the RSPCA. So, he comes with a, a wealth of knowledge uh, uh, and able to speak with authority. And all of this has been achieved in a, with the guiding principles, I, I understand, of, of coming from simplicity and, and connectedness. So, I will stop talking now and hand over to Satish Thank you, Kumar. thank you, thank you. Thank you very much for such a wonderful, warm welcome and introduction. Uh, it is a great pleasure and honor. Nice to see you. <laughs> uh, this is nice, uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to be part of the sustainability um, series of lectures at LSE and uh, <clears throat> also part of uh, this new uh, sort of awareness at LSE and in many other universities that we don't not only talk about sustainability, but we live sustainability. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi is famous for that. Um, uh, he was um, once asked by one of the great Indian leader, uh, Dr. Lohia, he said, Bapuji, I mean, in, in India we call father, Gandhi was the father of nation, but even before that he was called father. Bapuji means father. Bapuji, you are not very handsome. You are not a great orator. We have in our Congress party many great orators like Pandit Nehru, who became later India's prime minister, and many, many other great intellectuals and speakers and so on. But when they speak, Maybe a few hundred come, and maybe a few dozens follow. But when you speak, and not a great orator, toothless, but tens of thousands come, and when you launch a movement, hundreds of thousands of people uh, follow you, what is your secret? So, Mahatma Gandhi said, I don't know. Only thing I can say is that I have never asked anyone to do anything which I have not done myself. Because we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. That phrase, 
that we have to be the change that we want to see in the world came in that conversation and became very famous and now lots of people quote. So it is wonderful to see that at LSE, this world-famous university, you are putting beehives on the roof and producing honey. That's a wonderful to see. And you are concerned, you have a, a group of people here who are concerned about reducing your carbon footprint and the impact on the environment. And, uh, and I'm very, very delighted uh, that you are on that scene. Uh, London School of Economics is very much concerned about economy. But sometimes we have not quite realized the big meaning of the word economy. It's a very beautiful word. We have reduced the meaning of the word economy very much in terms of finance or money or business management. And this is why when uh, government leaders or business leaders or even academics talk about economic growth, they are mainly talking about growth in money movement, financial movement. But economy is more than money and finance. Word economy and ecology come from the same root in Greek language. Ecos means home. So where you live in your personal home, where you have bedroom, you have bathroom, you have a garden, you have a kitchen, that's your home. But in the wisdom of the Greek philosophers, your home extends further from your private personal home. Your village is your home. Your neighborhood is your home. Your county, your nation, your continent. But ultimately, the entire planet is your home. So, ecology and economy are connected with the management and understanding and knowledge of planet home, earth home, and not just nation or country or continent or your home. Now, ecology, the two words, ecos, which is home, planet home, and logos means knowledge of the planet home. How all the species upon this earth relate to each other. Understanding that. In our academic world of universities, quite often, and I hope not at LSE, but quite often, we have reduced the meaning of the word ecology as we have done with the economy, sort of a reductionist mindset that we have in our modern uh, industrial academia. So we have reduced the word and study of one particular species, we call it ecology. In ecology, because he has studied or she has studied a particular species. But ecology is not the study of just one particular species. Ecology, in its true meaning, 
is to understand and the knowledge of the entire ecosystem, entire planet Earth, and how, in our, at least in our concept, how all the species fit together, how everything is interconnected, interrelated, interdependent, how everything is made of the same basic elements. We are all made of the same elements that the trees are made of, the animals are made of. The humans and animals and trees share the basic elements, the basic genes, the basic bacteria, the basic uh, um, elements, I would, to simply, simply elements I would call them. We are all made of earth, air, fire, water, space, and further than that, we are also, and there are more elements in, in Indian philosophy, we are made of consciousness. And we are made of imagination and creativity and intelligence. So according to uh, my definition of ecology is to understand the intelligence of nature, the creativity of nature. The modern science has seen earth as a dead matter. People like Richard Dawkins will talk about earth not a living system. But we have a new understanding in science, the modern or, or latest science, if not modern, the latest science of Gaia. James Lovelock, uh, Lynn Margulis, late Lynn Margulis from the United States, and many, many other scientists have come up. E.O. Wilson in recent times, uh, his new book, many new uh, scientists uh, and there was a big debate between uh, uh, James Lovelock and Richard Dawking, and similarly between, uh, uh, between E.O. Wilson and Richard Dawking, because uh, uh, Richard Dawking is more like a science journalist, sort of only reductionist approach to uh, ecosystem. So um, he says simply that Earth is not a living system because Earth does not produce another Earth. That's a very limited meaning of living system that he has. But uh, we have this new understanding in new science, the holistic science which we teach at Schumacher College, is that Earth is a living system. And we need to understand how everything works and sits together in a great harmony. The sun is in harmony with the soil and the plants and how uh, it gives life to plants and how plants give life um, to birds and animals and humans and how soil gives life to plants. All is interconnected. So that understanding, that knowledge is ecology. And how we manage that uh, uh, earth system biological and ecological and, and, and geological system. How we manage it? What is our connection? What is our relationship? How much we use and how much we respect and how we relate that understanding, the very practical understanding, is economy. Now, how many people in our uh, world read economists, hardly ecology mentioned in the, in the uh, magazine, or talk to George Osborne when he talks about economy. He doesn't have that understanding of the planet Earth and how the economy of nature, economy of the ecosphere, 
very little understanding of that. And so we have reduced economy, like we have reduced ecology to study of one species, we have reduced economy to the money management. And then when there's a money crisis, we say we are going through recession. The real economy has no recession. Earth never says that I'm going to stop producing food. Trees never say, the apple trees, I'm an orchard keeper with my wife June there, we have 15 apple trees. Whichever year, it never says 2008 or 2009, when banks are going through crisis or anything, the trees are still producing apples. The cows never say that we are going to stop producing milk. So, economy of nature never has any recession. But we get obsessed with recession because it's a money problem. It's a financial problem. It's a banking problem. It's the supply of goods and services in terms of money. So, the true economy, classic true economy, uh, starts with land, labor, and capital. So land comes at the top. We have forgotten that. Nowadays, people don't really study land. I mean, you studied land and agriculture. That was wonderful. But in modern economics, people don't study land. And so land is a representative of nature. Soil, earth, land. Everything comes from the land. All our food, our clothes, our houses, these beautiful wood uh, paneling uh, in this room, uh, they come from the soil, from the earth, from the land, the trees, all everything. And so land is at the top. But if you ask uh, our economists, they have very little understanding of land. If you ask George Osborne or David Cameron or anyone, they live there. when they talk about economy, they don't say how is the land, our land in good heart, good shape, good agriculture. Now agriculture is becoming factory farming. Agriculture has lost altogether its meaning, its purpose. There are no longer agriculture. There is no culture. Now we have big factory farms where cows and pigs are put into pigeon holes like little, little cubicles. And, and now people are not cultivating land with the connection with the land, touching the soil, understanding the soil, the quality of the soil. Now big farms particularly in the United States and Australia and big, big farms, but also in, in, um, in Britain's coming and is starting, robots are running the farm. The big, big, huge combined harvesters and tractors are, are operated by robots. And even if they are sometimes operated by human beings, they don't have any connection with the soil or the environment. They have some music going on in their ears. <laughs> And they are driving big tractor and all uh, kind of mechanized and automated and everything. And we put chemicals, fertilizers, pesticide, herbicide. We have lost the sense of the, the integrity and, and the kind of authenticity even, I would say, of the land, the soil. And so because we have lost that. We have become so concerned about money. So now, instead of land having its own intrinsic value, 
land has become a commodity and land has become a kind of real estate particularly in places like London or New York or, or um, Paris real estate land value is in terms of its commercial value so land has become a means to make money rather than money being means to look after the land so we have turned the, the whole thing upside down and so what we need to do put back is land has intrinsic value nature has intrinsic value and our work is to honor that intrinsic value respect that intrinsic value and not think only in terms of nature's usefulness to make money that is a big uh, conceptual and psychological transformation that we need and, and, and it should come out of London School of Economics uh, more particularly because it is the School of Economics and, uh, and when you put land at the top, then second thing comes is labor. And labor is not a labor party. Labor is not a dirty word. We think, oh, you are a laborer. We have demeaned the word labor. Labor is human being, human skills, human ingenuity, human engineering, human imagination, human creativity. We are all labor. We work, we produce food, we make furniture, we write poetry, we paint paintings, we build houses, we make shoes, we do make things. And that is lost. Now our universities hardly teach our young people to make anything, use their labor. Work has become a dirty word. Although we are from uh, 8 or 9 in the morning to 6 or 7 or 8 in the evening, we are working, working, working. But we are just sitting in front of computer and we call it work. And, and just uh, um, uh, surf the screen and, and internet and web and Google and Facebook and uh, emails and all that kind of figures and so on. But there is no real skills. The, the students coming out of universities like LSE, like London School of, uh, I mean, uh, the, the University of London or Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale or big, big universities of the world, students coming out of those universities have very little skills. More or less universities are de-skilling our young people. We don't teach anything to do with hands, with making, with doing work. Work has become a dirty word. Labor has become a dirty word. But in classical economics, labor was a, 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 a kind of bridge between land, which means nature, and capital, which means finance and money. So now labor too has become a means to an end to make money. If you are a good uh, person, uh, only good person, um, you are only a good worker or good uh, staff member or good employee if you are making lots and lots of profit for the company, for the business. If you are no good, you are fired. So human beings have become the instruments, the means of making money and profit for the big companies and big business. I would like to say human skills and human beings truly human beings and the skills added to that have intrinsic value like land has intrinsic value nature has intrinsic value human beings have intrinsic value so human rights and rights of nature 
go much more beyond than how we understand human rights. The rights of humans to live in harmony with the natural world. That is most fundamental intrinsic value of every human being. We respect and honor. And then in order to smooth the way uh, and our relationship among humans and our relationship between humans and, and the natural world, to smooth the way, it's a very good invention that we created. I call capital. Money. It's a good invention. As long as you keep that, uh, that hierarchy. You keep money in its place. Money has a place. Capital has a place. But you keep it in its place. And not allow it to rule and dominate our lives the way it is doing today. And not put capital at the top and then human beings to earn and manage the capital and the land as a kind of commodity and investment. So this is the order that I would like to go back to, which was the classic. I'm not saying anything new. And, and uh, Adam Smith was not really an economist. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, ethical moral philosophy. And the economics was only a branch of moral philosophy uh, in terms of uh, uh, Smith's thinking. And so... We need to bring those ethical, ecological, moral, uh, spiritual even, I would say, uh, values into our economic thinking. So ecology and economy go together. I mean, in my paper, which you might have seen, uh, which I sent to John, I have even suggested that perhaps London School of uh, uh, Economics can lead, can be the leader in the field of environment and sustainability. And I have even suggested that perhaps you consider changing uh, name and adding another E to LSE. Another E, and that is LSEE, London School of Ecology and Economics. What do you think? <laughs> Perhaps our uh, head of sustainability will take this little idea to the, to the uh, departments and say, this crazy Indian speaker was speaking about sustainability and he said, the LSE needs to be the world leader. And, and it is already, I mean, you have associated with LSE is a Grantham Institute and Nicholas Stern is one of the world leader in the thinking of environmental and, and ecological and climate change and global warming and all those issues so already. But if you were to say we are going to embrace ecology and environment and nature an integral part of our study and we are not only talking about it, we are changing our name and we are going to be LSEE. That'll be great. Um, all the newspapers around the world will write about you. They will say, wow, university, famous uh, world university uh, like LSE is leading the way in this field of environmental sustainability and ecology. Because without ecology, economy is only walking on one leg. Because eco ecology, logos, means knowledge of ecosphere and uh, economy, management of ecosphere. How are you going to manage something if you don't know it? Can you manage something if you don't know your building, your business, you don't know anything, but you are self, uh, made a manager? So to manage our ecosphere, we need to know it. And I learned, I learned about ecology 
and economy as well in a bigger, broader, more comprehensive, more holistic understanding of ecology and economy and not the reductionist understanding of ecology and economics. I learned it, as you mentioned, by walking the earth. When I walked the earth, I understood the, the earth which holds me. And I realized the Buddha, uh, the Buddha, I mean, we have Lama here from Buddhist tradition. The Buddha was asked, he was sitting in meditation, and the Buddha was asked, where did you get your wisdom and compassion for the natural world? Uh, Buddha was teaching compassion to all sentient beings. Where did you learn it? Not only compassion to human beings, but all sentient beings. And Buddha lifted one of his hand, right hand, and touched the earth and said, my teacher is the earth. What a humility. He said, and, and humility is from the earth, because earth, if you know its Latin term, is also called humus. And humus means soil, and human means us. So, and humility, because soil is always under your feet. Very humble. It never goes on your head. Always very humble. And what you do to the earth? You dig it, you plow it, you tread on it, you do what we build on it. Whatever you do, still earth forgives. Earth has compassion. And when you put one plant, one, one seed into the soil, it comes back with thousand apples, year after year after year. Generosity of nature. Compassion of nature. Unconditional love of nature for human beings and for all the other sentient beings. Because apples, when you go to the apple tree, it never asks you, have you come with a visa card? <laughs> it gives you apples. Take whoever you are, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, um, uh, young, old, uh, black, white, men, women, or human, animal, bees, wasps, whoever you are, take apples. That's a kind of unconditional love and generosity and, and a harmony between humans. And the food is the bridge of that harmony. Earth provides food for all sentient beings with compassion. So this nature is not red in tooth and claw as some scientists want us to believe. Nature is also compassionate. Nature is also kind. Without nature's compassion and kind and generosity of food and clothes and housing and everything that we get from nature, where will we be? So nature is not just red in tooth and claw. Nature is much more compassionate and kind. And so uh, um, ecology and economy, I learned that while walking the earth. And uh, today, as um, I already mentioned, uh, my book's fourth new edition is coming out, which tells you the story of my walking around the world and touching the earth and going without any money in my pockets for peace. But peace is not only peace among humans, and peace does not mean only absence of war. Peace is a way of life. And I met Martin Luther King after my walk, uh, arriving in Washington, D.C., and he said this, that nonviolence and peace is not only an absence of war. Peace and nonviolence is a way of life. How we live in harmony with the natural world. How we live in harmony with ourselves. How we live in harmony with our fellow human beings. That's a way of life. And this is why in India we always say peace, which is shanti. And we say it three times. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Which means peace 
Peace, peace. First of all, peace within ourselves. If we don't make peace with ourselves, peace of mind, peace in our heart, and we are anxious, and we don't recognize ourselves, we don't uh, uh, accept ourselves, I would say even love ourselves. It's an imperative that before you can love others, before you can love nature, you can love your beloved wife or husband, before you can love your children and your neighbors, you have to love yourself. As Jesus Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we think loving yourself is selfish. No, love yourself is not selfish. Love is different from this hankering desire for recognition and name and fame and money and success. That's a different thing. Accepting yourself who you are, your potential. You, every one of us, are a unique special gift to this earth. And we have birthright to be well, to be healthy, to be happy, to be joyful. And that is our birthright. We don't have to, uh, to, uh, to have money to be happy. We don't have to be money to be joyful. We don't have to money. We don't have to have money for uh, all our basic uh, human uh, conditions and human uh, rights. And so uh, I learned that. That we have to make peace with ourselves and we have to make peace with nature. At the moment, the way we behave uh, uh, with nature and we retreat nature, is, uh, it seems as if we are at war against nature. The way we are creating global warming and climate change, the way we are polluting uh, the environment with greenhouse gases, and, and the temperatures rising, and the oceans are full of plastic and pollution and overfishing, and the rainforests are being destroyed day and day after day, day in and day out. There are thousands upon thousands of acres of rainforest are being cut down as we speak um, every day. And the way we, as I said, land, we use the land with poisonous uh, chemicals and fertilizers and mess with our seas with genetic engineering, and you can go on. The way we are treating nature is a war. And if we, if we think that we can win this war, we are mistaken. Even if we were supposed to win the war, we will be the losers. And so having peace with nature, peace with environment, peace with the earth is as much an economic and ecological principle as it is a spiritual principle. And so I learned that by walking around the world and being in the desert, being in the snow, being in the mountains, being in the forest, being uh, on, the, on the sea, um, in the rivers. And I realized that how we are totally, utterly dependent on the natural world. We human beings have developed this arrogance that we are so special that all the species uh, in the world are inferior to us. And we are so superior that all the species should be sacrificed for our need and for our greed even. And, and we can go on uh, destroying the natural world. And we can go on destroying our rainforests and oceans and the, uh, the ecosphere. That kind of uh, mindset, I call it sort of human arrogance. We have to challenge that. We have to challenge that and transform that and say we are part of nature. We are not separate from nature. We are not above nature. We are not separate from nature. We are nature. The word nature means to be born. Natal, native, prenatal, postnatal. The word natal and nature come from the same root. So when a, a woman, a mother is pregnant, she goes for a check before the birth called prenatal check. 
after the birth, postnatal check. So natal means birth. So everything what is born is nature. We humans are born too. So we are nature. So what we do to nature, we do to ourselves. So if we pollute nature, if we destroy nature, we create global warming, climate change, water polluted, air polluted, we are polluting ourselves. So this is why we are suffering with so much ill health, so much ill health that um, NHS cannot cope NHS cannot cope with our illness so much. Billions and billions of pounds and dollars in America and Europe and England and India, everywhere we are spending and yet lack of health. Why? Because we have disconnected ourselves from nature. I would like to change like I want LSEE. I want NHS to have a different meaning. Rather than National Health Service, I want to call it Natural Health Service. NHS, Natural Health Service, when you are in nature, with nature, walking in nature, along the rivers, uh, um, by the sea, and, and touching the earth, and being in nature, you will be happier. Your mind will be better. Your body will be better. I'm 78 years old, and I have no lack of energy. A vegetarian, no lack of energy. I walk in nature. I live in a small place and I go to the sea and I go in the valley and my wife and I, we walk. So walking and being in nature is the greatest therapy. And we think nature is just there for our use and abuse. So this new understanding, that is sustainability. This kind of human arrogance that we can do what we like to nature, we like to nature is not sustainable. So if you want sustainability, you have to transform your mindset. You have to transform your values. You have to transform your philosophy. You have to transform your outlook. If you look at nature down there, and us human superior controlling nature and dominating nature, the idea of conquering nature, and, and, and find thinking that all solutions will come from technology, and global warming will be solved by technology. Now we have removed our faith, including Richard Dawking and others, um, on, from God or religion or something, but we have a new God. And that new God is either market for the economists and, or technology for the scientists and technologists. So I think technology cannot solve the problem. Technology is helpful tools, of course. Technology is a good thing. Like economy is a good thing. But it's the mindset. It's our relationship with the natural world. That is the key. As the solutions of our ecological and sustainability issues and problems are not going to be solved by technology. How much you can, now people are talking about, there's a new film about it. Um, people are talking about leaving this planet and going and, and, and sort of occupying another planet. What nonsense, in my view, that's complete. We have to take care of this planet. I mean, uh, Richard Branson was trying to go into the space. What happened to him? So one example. And do you think that seven billion people can find some place somewhere else? So we have destroyed this planet, and now we are going to find another planet and destroy that one. It is our responsibility to make this place sustainable and ecologically and economically sound and, and, and everlasting. Our economy should not be only for five years or ten years. Our economy should be for millions of years. This earth has been providing sustenance, nourishment and, and, and a good health to people and animals and all sentient beings for millions of years. That's an economy of nature. For millions of years, we think of um, our um, balance sheet, of annual balance sheet, and banks look at the, uh, the profit margin every quarter or every month. 
but nature's economy economy of nature thinks in terms of millions of years so we want and i want lse and all the other universities and all the kind of groups and human beings to think the what kind of economy we want to create which will last forever that's the permaculture that's a kind of sustainable durable economy that is what we 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 are talking about when we talk about sustainability sustainability is not for 5 years or 10 years sustainability is for millions of years to come our children and grandchildren and great grandchildren for many 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 and you can go go on adding many 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 generations to come they have to live in a good life so this is all um, common sense what i'm speaking to you is not a rocket science what i'm speaking to you is not something academic i'm not talking about any great philosophy or some um, kind of uh, obscure uh, facts um, from academic uh, kind of uh, research i'm talking to common sense but we have lost our common sense we don't have common sense anymore in common common sense is no longer common so we need to be reminded that sustainability is a common sense and if we live in harmony with nature and all the elements with the land and the people and the skills and live good simple elegant simple life elegantly simple we don't have to have all this wasteful because uh, one body can only have one jumper and one jacket or we can have a two or three or four but wardrobe full of clothes and uh, full of shoes and attic full of stuff we buy 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 and put in uh, in the attic that's wasteful that's not sustainable so sustainability is a mindset like martin luther king said non violence is a way of life i would say sustainability is also a way of life so with this very simple message that i bring you uh, from resurgence by magazine and those of you who have not uh, heard of resurgence please look at our website resurgence.org and now it's merged uh, with ecologist so ecologist was founded by edward goldsmith and resurgence uh, was a group of people john papworth and leopold core but particularly ef schumacher the author of small is beautiful so these two great uh, ancestors of um, uh, ecological ancestors of britain edward goldsmith and and ef schumacher so we carry their message through our magazine so please look at our website and and if you are able to subscribe if you like it you can get one or two copies uh, and subscribe to it and uh, and later on i'll be signing my book uh, and so again i would like to thank lse for inviting me to speak here about economics and ecology and going beyond economics to ecology and and embracing a, a holistic world view so that we can make a very good society for our children and grandchildren thank you very much Thank you very much for your wonderful response. But now we have some time for questions. Yeah, question here, microphone. Um, I think your ideas are really beautiful and very inspirational. But I'd like to ask you, in terms of um, making the visions more actionable, what do you think uh, the change requires, and do you think it's actually possible? Yes. Um, <coughs> the actionable is every day you have to one of my great passion is food and i say 
where do you start sustainability stop buying mother's pride which is neither mother nor pride but bake your own bread and when you bake your own bread you will know what kind of flour you are using is it organic is it stone ground is it wholesome good flour fresh flour you bake when you bake you slow down you reconnect with nature you reconnect with yourself it's almost like a meditation my wife june and i bake bread and make chapatis and cook food so that's a good starting point in your own life because unless we start with ourselves we cannot change the world we have like a, like a big tree comes out of a small seed you cannot put tree into the seed tree has to come out of the seed so you are that seed and the big tree which is a movement of transformation and change of for sustainability will come out of you and you and you so we cannot wait for big leaders uh, in the white hall or uh, westminster or white house uh, to change the world we you are the leaders leader is not a special kind of person but every person is a special kind of leader so we are all leaders we take responsibility upon ourselves i say i am going to start with my life and then i'm going to communicate like i'm communicating tonight with you through magazine through speaking through poetry through painting through music through dance whatever the means that suits you communicate to 10 other people if 100 people here communicate with 10 other people with 1000 people to- talking about sustainability and 1000 people communicate with 10 other people with 10000 people so we have to build a movement but that movement will start from each and every one of us so we take responsibility upon ourselves say what kind of food i am buying what kind of clothes i am buying how i am living can i work maybe 3 days a week rather than 5 days a week that'll be a good start we work too hard we have no time for sustainability because we are just kind of slaving away so reduce your work uh, time negotiate with your uh, company and business uh, and or even university and say i'm going to job share 3 days a week that's enough i need time for my garden i need time for my uh, bread baking i need time for walking i need time for myself i want to write poetry i want to um, make a drama i want to um, paint a picture i want to help see my friends i want to look after my parents have time for yourself and then it will spread each and every one of us are leaders and we can transform the world there's a question there on the back there can you take your yeah so um yeah i think you speak a language of serenity uh, the natural economy is yes. uh, the answer um the i think it's the language the how you demonstrate this to the economists to the financial times all these people is key i run a company we push zero carbon technologies we work with leading ethical companies who are committed like minded organizations and we should learn a little you bit you run a farm organization uh, water hmm? water water technology uh, water water technology water water zero sorry, carbon sorry, yeah. yeah sure so the other day 2 billion liters of wastewater was dumped into us aquifers drinking water so the future yeah. generations are going to be yeah. pretty much you know plagued by by that by that action of a of a a large multinational so i think 
the language you're using now applies and it needs to be taught. It's a language of serenity, you know, because the actions that are happening around the world are insane. Let's face it, you know, our, our future generations are being yeah. plagued right now. So, so I think question is? the question is, how do, you, how do you create this communication strategy? You're, is there a way in which... You, you know, you build a movement. You know, in, in digital startups, they have lots yeah. of lots of people who, who push okay. movements. Okay. We need this. Good, good. Um, how you do something is always asked. How do you do it? How you build a house? How you change the world? How you love? There is no one technique. You do it by doing it. You build a house by building a house. You make the world sustainable by taking action. And each and every one of us have that wisdom. If you ask the question, you don't need Satish Kumar or anybody else to give you a recipe. You and every human being have their wisdom, like you are doing your water project. It's wonderful. And so every one of us have to ask, what I do? How I do it? You have the answer. There's no one recipe. There's no one formula. That will be a very kind of dogmatic and very reductionist approach to give you one formula, one how you do it. You do it by doing it. How do you learn to play violin? By playing it. How do you learn to write poetry? By writing it. How do you learn to uh, paint a picture? Whatever you want to do, just do it. By give yourself time to do it. Give yourself um, uh, in intention to do it. You need intention. When, when you s say to yourself, I can do it. I can trust when I went around the world without money. How did I do it? Just I said to myself, I can walk. I can trust people. I don't have to have carry money. And once you say, I can do it, then you say, I will do it. I will do it. I can do it. I will do it. And then third stage, you say, I am doing it. I'm starting to walk. I'm starting to paint. Don't have to think that on the first day you start to paint, you become a Picasso or Van Gogh. No need to worry. You just paint for your own pleasure and joy. So if you are looking after water and saving water, do it to first and foremost to for your own pleasure. Why do I edit the magazine and work for the environmental movement and sustainability movement? Because I enjoy it. It's not a burden. Saving the earth is a pleasurable joy. Looking after your family is a pleasurable joy. Teaching children is a pleasurable joy. So take pleasure in the transformation of the world. Do agriculture, organic agriculture, take pleasure in it. Do whatever you do, do with love. Love what you do and do what you love. Then you can do it. So there's no one formula. There's no one technique for everybody. Each and every one of us have to find our own technique. Let's take some more questions. Yeah. There's a question there. Hi, um, we started the session with the example of the bee and the beekeeping on the LSE's rooftop. Now, 
Can you so we started the session with the bee and the beekeeping on the rooftop of LSE. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. If you look at bees, they obviously they take nectar from the from the flower and then thereby contribute towards pollination. Yeah. So they have a contribution to ecology. Yeah. And every other species in the planet has some contribution towards ecology. They yeah. take something away from the ecology and add something back into it. As a human being, we just seems to be taking away from it. What is in an ideal world? What is our contribution back into the ecology? What is it that we are giving back to the ecology? Obviously, with the experience, I yes. I, I, I have never found this answer. So I thought maybe you'd yeah, be able yeah. to find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing is that on the one extreme, we think the human beings are so special, so superior that we control and subjugate and conquer nature. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, you can say, oh, human beings are parasite. Human beings do not contribute anything. Human beings are useless. That's another extreme. I'm not an extremist. I follow the middle path. I think it's a wonderful evolution that nature, through its natural selection or whatever means it has done, it has thrown a human species and, and we are here on this earth. So it's wonderful. And, uh, and we, can, um, we can have relationship with the earth, we can appreciate the earth, we can write poetry about the earth, we can sing songs about the earth. We can, we can be like in a court, uh, um, uh, players and, and, and poets and, 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 a, and a kind of theatrical people and dancers have a role. So human beings have a role upon this earth. We don't have to think that we are useless. And we have to sort of get rid of human beings so that Earth can live in harmony without the destruction. So, I mean, uh, earthquakes will come, tsunami will come. Uh, all these sort of uh, movements happen on the Earth. So I do not think that human beings have no role. Human beings have no place. We are, we are not doing anything to nature. Uh, other species are doing, but we are not doing anything. We are planting seeds. We are writing poetry about it. Van Gogh is painting pictures of uh, sunflower. So we can, we can celebrate nature. Like flowers celebrate the earth. And, and uh, we, can, we can look after nature as well as nature looks after us. Because we are mutual. It's a mutuality. It's not a one-way system. It's the earth gives us, we give back to the earth. Replenish the earth. And so if we live in that reciprocity and mutuality, and caring for the earth, we have a place, we have a role, and we are fine. We don't have to get rid of humanity. But only what we have to get rid of is our greed and our, our, our desire and our kind of this idea that we conquer nature and rule nature and, and go on it's economic growth, economic growth, economic growth, and more airports, more roads, more railways, more this, more that. If we can subdue that kind of uh, ambitious desire, then I think human beings can live in harmony with the earth. That's my thinking. Uh, there are two questions there. Yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, you with glasses. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> um, is this yeah? I in earlier on you mentioned the word permaculture, and I know that previously you've spoken about local economics and the yeah. role that it has to do with ecology yeah. and environment. And I was just wondering if you could maybe shed some light on that in terms of the talk that you've given now and what the role would be in, 
if you were to envisage an economic system that was to take into consideration ecology, how would you see that beginning to change? The role of role of how do I say role of? Sorry, the, so the role of economics. But role of economics, yeah. Of localized economics. Yeah, yeah. The role of economics is a very important role, um, as I said, that um, we have to uh, somehow be part of the self-organizing, self-managing ecosystem. And so we are part of that self-managing and self-organizing system. And so our role would be uh, that we use finance, money, capital in bringing those relationships together. That will be the role of economics. Uh, at the moment, the role of economics is to control people, to control nature, to, um, to uh, subjugate and exploit nature. So, uh, for example, if you want a sustainable economics, the role of economics is to, to tell uh, our uh, students and our young people and our business leaders how we um, manage our relationship with the natural world. So, for example, uh, we were talking about sustainability. I said, uh, economists should say that uh, use material which is overground rather than underground. So underground, coal, oil, uh, uranium, um, um, steel, and, and iron, all these things, you have to use vast amount of energy to dig it out and bring it out, fossil fuels and so on. Whereas overground is sun, you don't have to spend so much energy, uh, wind, soil, wood, all these things we can use. So use overground rather than what is underground. So that's the role of economics, to differentiate between what is damaging uh, relationship between humans and nature and what is um, more fruitful and nourishing and nurturing and enhancing relationship between humans and nature. That is the role of economics. So I think that gives an, an example of uh, one example of how uh, the the economics which is proposing is is more local by using uh, overground materials. Does that answer the question for you? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Next question. Yes, sir. There is a question there, and then the question there. Yeah. Can you can you give my point there? Oh, thank yeah. you very much. I don't know whether you know of Harold and Margaret Sprout, the American political scientists who've written a lot about the ecological aspects of international relations and international relations theory. I wonder if you have heard of them, but even if you haven't, whether you just say, as you have already talked a lot of interesting things, the ecological aspect of international relations. Economic aspects of... Ecological. Ecological. Economic. Ecological aspects. Ecological. Okay. Ecological aspect of international relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually ecological and economic is related. Uh, as I talked about local economy, if you are using transportation and international connections are maintained by lots of transportation of goods and services, then it will be damaging to ecology and therefore it's not a good economy. So I would say the ecological uh, relationship with the international uh, uh, nations 
should be more on the uh, level of understanding ideas, uh, literature, poetry, uh, all that, rather than actual um, transportation. Because transportation, as I said, um, uh, you talked about the um, role of economics. And I said, use only overground material is one uh, one example. The other example will be uh, that um, uh, minimize your transportation. Minimize your transportation. Even in Britain, if you are putting lorry, this is why I said to you, to you, start baking bread because all this bread is being transported uh, from one big uh, bakery and all over the country. All these lorries are going up and down, and each lorry only. Only kind of, um, if you think how much fossil fuel the lorries use, uh, uh, one gallon of petrol will take you maybe, in, if you are in a big lorry, three or four or five miles. So huge amount of transportation and use of fossil fuel is used. So if we have international relationship on the basis of ecology, it will be more thinking globally and internationally, and acting locally. That will be the ecological principle. Because we are universalist. Whole planet is one home. The ecology and economy means planet home. So we are not provincial, we are not parochial, we are not nationalist, we are not racist. We embrace the entire universe as a universal culture. Tagore's poetry, Shakespeare's plays, um, Tolstoy's novels, we read all over the world. So you can have thinking globally, internationally, but acting locally. That's economics. So I think that is the balance that we have to maintain. Question there. When I was listening to your um, characterization of nature and how yeah. good and how you know, how, how nourishing nature is and all the rest. I, it didn't really, you know, I, when I think back in history, I think one of the things that was driving technological and scientific advancement was, was the fear of nature. So people were afraid of catastrophe, of famines, of, you know, disease, of um, floods. Um, nature was a threat. Uh, and the closer it was, the more it was perceived as a threat. Uh, so we created gods to somehow tame nature. Hmm. Um, and so from the very beginning, the relationship between nature and human beings was one of distrust, or one of one of fear. So it's, uh, and of course, the more we tamed it, or thought we tamed it, um, the more we created things then ultimately like climate change and it again becomes a threat. So it's, it's been a threat from the beginning and it still is a threat. So maybe you can say something about that. Yes, yes. Uh, <coughs> the thing is that fear and mistrust, whether it's a fear of nature, fear of death, fear of catastrophe, fear of bad weather, fear of anything, fear of hunger, fear is not a solution. When I um, was walk, starting to walk from India, one of my very dear friends came to me and said, Satish, you are going to Pakistan, our enemy country? Three wars between India and Pakistan. You have no money, you are walking. What about your safety? Fear. I said, so what? She said, I bring you this food. She brought some packets of food. 
and say, at least take some food with you. So while you are looking for some hospitality, you have something to eat. Fear. I looked at these packets of food and I said, my friend, these packets of food are not packets of food. They are packets of fear and mistrust. I'm not going to take it. So, but what will happen if you don't get food? I said, I have no fear of hunger. If I don't get food, I will say, that is my opportunity to fast. What's wrong with fasting? One or two days, I'm not going to... Well, if something happened, I'm not going to die in two or three days fasting, and then something will emerge. You have to trust. I said, what about if you don't get shelter? You are not taking any money. I said, if I don't get shelter, I sleep under the stars. You stay in four-star hotels, five-star hotels, I'll be sleep under a million-star hotel. So she said, she started crying. She said, I might not see you again. You are going to this communist country, capitalist country, uh, rain, snow, uh, uh, deserts, mountains, no money, walking. I said, if I die, that would be wonderful. Walking for peace and dying for peace is fine. What's wrong with that? So you drop the fear of death, you drop the fear of hunger, you drop the fear of lacking something, and you see that the, the universe is benevolent. It's not a malevolent universe. I was born, what did I come with? No money, no house, no degree, no PhD from LSE, nothing. I had nothing, no language. How did I grow up if I had a fear? Immediately the moment I am born, the universe, the benevolent universe, puts milk in the breast of my mother. Not for one day, not for two days. Uh, it's air-conditioned uh, refrigerator there, never goes off. And for two years that I was fed by my mother's breast milk. Where did it come from? So this idea that nature is cruel, nature is red in tooth and claw, we have to fear, we have to tame it, we have to make it controlling it, and we have to air condition everything, and we have to organize our lives so that we can be cut uh, up. So that is a fear is making us timid. I want us human beings to be adventurous. To, to, have, um, to have a kind of, uh, kind of resilience. We are becoming very irresilient. We cannot sustain anything. Any little, little thing happens, we are shocked. We are always flat, or this, or that. We have to make our communities resilient, our own personal life resilient. And nature is all. <clears throat> it's not all good. I call it benevolent universe, but also there are malevolent. There's an earthquake, there's a tsunami, there's a alino, uh, uh, there's a, uh, all these things when nature happens. We will live with it. We have to have that resilience that whatever difficulty comes, welcome. Problems come with nature or with uh, human life, welcome. We have capacity to resolve and solve any problem which we face. That kind of confidence, our universities and our schools need to give that confidence to each child and each young person, rather than making them timid. Oh, nature is too difficult and life is too difficult and business is too difficult and everything is too difficult. Fear, fear, fear. If you live in fear, you don't get anywhere. You live a timid life. I want life. Gandhi did not fear bullet. 
Nelson Mandela did not fear imprisonment. Martin Luther King did not fear. Mother Teresa did not fear. Jesus Christ did not fear. St. Francis did not fear. What's the fear? We are born here under the sun. Every day sun is shining for us. Rain in England, the green and pleasant land of England, rain is coming all for us. So we don't have a shortage of water. You put one seed in the ground, it gives you a thousand apples every year. What are you feeling about? Look at the universe. It's a wonderful, benevolent. Every day I say, wow, thank you, sun god, you are shining whenever you shine. And even when you are not shining, still is a light. So fear, mistrust, get rid of it. Fear, mistrust is no good. It diminishes your confidence and your resilience. You are strong. You are beyond imagination how strong you are. Your capacity, your potential to be in this world and, and be happy is there. So I would say no fear, no mistrust. Let's take uh, another question. The yes. gentleman at the back in the green. Most people here will agree with most of what you've said. You're preaching to the converted. I don't think what you've said would appeal to the rich and powerful. You're not, you're not reaching them. A lot of them, even, even the rich and powerful who, who recognize the extreme urgency of the ecological crisis that they are not influenced by the way you speak that they have too much temptation that the higher a person's income goes then by and large the greater the carbon footprint and you're not saying anything about how to deal with the temptation to resolve that problem so is, is your is your question how can how you deal respond? with the temptation yeah yeah good thank you thank you uh, i like preach with the converted <laughs> if this water and this glass this glass is converted to have water if this glass was let's say it has got a water in it this glass was like this, unconverted, and I pour water on it. It will all go on the floor. Not a drop will go in the, water, uh, in the glass. What's the point of pouring water on a glass which is upside down, closed, closed mind, closed heart, closed ears, don't want to listen, it's not ready? What's the point? I don't want to waste my time to talking to people who are closed mind. So I like to pour water when the glass is ready to receive my water. So preaching the converted is I like. Now, with my example, with my life, with my words, some hearts may open. If they open, I will celebrate. If they remain closed, it's not my problem. It's their problem, and they are causing problem for the world and for the universe. So they have to wake up. 
And I can't wake everybody up. I can't go to Bank of England and say, wake up. I can't go to 10 Downing Street, wake up. Please arrange for my meeting with George Osborne or David Cameron. I'll be happy to go there. But if they are closed mind, there will be no benefit. So I think it's good to begin with people who are ready to listen. And then if you 100 people go out in the world and create some waves of change in your own life, Start baking bread. Start walking by the sea. Take some time for yourself. Be happy. You will radiate. And that radiation will warm the people who are cold. Radiator doesn't shout. They come and I will warm you. Radiator radiates. And then those who are cold will come to the radiator, will become warm. If they don't want to be warm, radiator is not going to shout at them. So if people are not ready, I'm not God, I'm not everything, I'm not uh, born here just on one shoulder's responsibility to save the whole planet Earth. It's not one person's responsibility. I will do my best. I will work for sustainability, for ecology, for environment, for spirituality, for good life, for happiness of humanity, up to the last breath of my life. That's all I can do. If all of you do the same, world will be different. I cannot take responsibility to change uh, Obama and change uh, David Cameron and change the Bank of England and change the Barclays Bank and change the Monsanto and change everything. I cannot take alone my responsibility. It's beyond my control. So I like to preach the converted who come to listen to LSE. LSE inviting me. That's a, that's a big thing. LSE is not all converted. And so now I'll be on LSE website. And there's a recording being going on, and our head of sustainability is going to talk to people and say, there was a crazy man coming here saying, we must change our name and call it LSEE. That'll be a good change. So please do not worry about uh, preaching to the converted and, and not preaching to the converted. Please don't worry. Communicate to whoever you are able to communicate. And be yourself. Be ecologically sustainable, uh, be happy, joyful person, live a good life, you are changing the world. You are changing the world. Time for one or two more questions, if you have them. Yeah. Uh, yes. The lady down at the front. Yeah. And then there's a question here as well. Um, I'm really interested in your con what your concept of violence is, because... The way you My talk of violence and peace, violence. because you don't talk about them as polar opposites, and I think you conceptualize violence quite differently to how a lot of people would do, because how you've talked about, for example, what um, you know, fear of the natural environment, and I know that a lot of people would conceptualize, for example, a tsunami as something violent, then uh, basically, can you explain what you mean by violence and peace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, violence is a lot related to the intention and also our psychological state of mind. Waste is violence. Greed is violence. Fear is violence. Violence is not just hitting somebody. If you say a word which is bringing tension and disharmony, it's violence. Speaking. Violent speech. So, Non-violence and violence are very much rooted in your intention, in your, in your mind, in your motivation behind your action. 
Then, I mean, in nature, there's violence. Life gives life. So there's a sacrifice. And this is why life is called sacred. Because small life gives uh, life to maintain big life. Small fish to big fish. We eat vegetables. I'm vegetarian. But still I eat vegetables. And vegetables are alive. So we all have that kind of violence. But that is not violence in the same way. Because my intention is of gratitude. I say, thank you vegetables, thank you soil, thank you tree, thank you sunshine, thank you rain, thank you my wife, thank you my um, children, thank you my mother and father, thank you my neighbors, thank you people who invite me. With gratitude, if I live and minimize my waste, minimize my greed, minimize my fear and mistrust, and maximize my compassion, maximize my appreciation and celebration, that I would call non-violence. So violence and non-violence is very much in your intention and in your way of life. It's not just outer. The physical violence is only a very small uh, kind of um, uh, tip of an iceberg. The real violence and non-violence in our mind, in our way of thinking, in our intentions, in our motivations. We've got another question over here, the gentleman in the striped shirt. Um, okay, I understand this is probably a slightly unfair question because, um, unlike me, you're probably not a historian by training. But you know, just to give us a point of reference, um, is there you know, a point human civilization, a point in time and space which you're thinking about when you say putting land first and labor next, or when you talk about people being trained in the particular skills that respect, really, um, the intrinsic value in in these things, in land and labor, because I knew you mentioned universities, but I mean, I, I've done quite a bit of work on medieval curricula at you know, places like Oxford and Cambridge. I don't remember anything like that, so just wondering what you thought about. So, um, can you summarize the question? I think the question was very much uh, uh, what point in time would uh, the origination of, of the, the hierarchy of uh, your ideas on economy? Uh, as in land. Yes. What, yeah. I think I'm right to say that. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think the, the change in this um, uh, hierarchy of land, labor, capital uh, came with this neoliberal economy, what is called, titled as neoliberal economy, where um, market became more important than uh, relationships. And, and well-being. So uh, market will destroy the, uh, the, uh, the crops in order to maintain the price of grain. For example, now there you are committing almost violence to nature, to crops, and people who are hungry, you are committing violence to them, but you are prepared to do it, and it's acceptable, as long as it maintains the market. Otherwise, if the prices go down, business will fail. So we have become slaves of prices and market. So that's the kind of neoliberal uh, attitude. And then market, also stock market. So, which is not related to what Adam Smith called the real market, where people bring goods and services and exchange goods and services. It's a stock market. And the stock market is where 90% of our money is locked. And the money is going around the world. This 90% of money has nothing to do with the money you use uh, for goods and services. 
So to buy a house, to buy food, to buy clothes, to buy shoes, to buy furniture, or make something and bring it to the market, your shops, this is only 10% of money is locked in the real goods and services. The 90% of money is locked in this market. So this market ruling, that's a neoliberal uh, economy. And, and the prices guiding our behavior, that has changed come in last, I would say, um, I mean, very difficult to pinpoint exact date, but uh, um, and the Chicago and, and the School of Economics and all those things, I'm sure LSE is very good at uh, tracing all this. But that is where it started, where land became a commodity, People became instruments of making money, market became the ruler, capital became the ruler, money became... That's a neoliberal economy. That's when it started. We've got time for probably two more questions. The, the gentleman uh, with his hand up, and, and then this lady here. Hi. Um, did you ever think about going into politics? Because <laughs> I'm listening to your speeches and I'm thinking, yeah, I'd vote for that. <laughs> um, what I'm doing is politics with a small p. And uh, I would like um, people like you and you uh, not only vote for, for me, but maybe go into politics. But the problem with politics is, whoever you vote, government gets in. <laughs> and the government, whether, I, I, mean, I have seen in Britain, now I have lived in Britain for about more than 40 years, and I've seen Labour government, I've seen Conservative government, I've seen coalition now, makes very little difference. So rather than expecting that change will come from politics, I am suggesting today and in my work always is that change will come from bottom up. When people are ready, people are demanding, change will come from the uh, top will listen. When they are both in green and sustainable lifestyle, the, the politicians will come to it. When I started editing Resurgence magazine, talking about renewable energy, talking about sustainability, talking about windmills and solar panels, was like a hippie. You are a hippie, wishy-washy, flaky ideas. And now it's becoming mainstream. And, and the good energy, ecotricity, many, many new companies are, um, are building renewable energy. So I, I believe that is a people's politics at a grassroots level is much more powerful. The public opinion is the real power. So I want to raise public opinion in the country where people say we want a more sustainable, more durable, more beautiful world rather than just money, money, money. That's where my work is. So I want people power rather than politicians power. Uh, one more question. Thank you very much. I just want to ask you about the ageist society. I see a lot of people suffering, a lot of colleagues uh, work for a big company who have been fired in their 50s and they can't find work. I see a lot of older people in this society that are not valued, the contribution is not valued because they are in their 70s. So what is your view of, what would you tell them? Because you are not feeling 
very well and they feel that maybe at a certain age you don't contribute anymore. So what is your view of hope? Older. Uh, yeah, and in the age society, they are not valued. So what is your view of what we can contribute, no matter how old we are, in your sustainable uh, economy? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think um, valuing uh, our elders, and I'm getting that way, <laughs> so it's my vested interest that people value elders, and, and respect our ancestors and our elders uh, because uh, young people have different qualities. They bring different qualities to society, to ecology, to environment, to sustainability, to economy, all those things. But older people also have wisdom and experience. And if you bring experience of the older generation, and the energy and, and enthusiasm uh, and, and act action of the younger generation, there's a wonderful co collaboration and wonderful combination. And so respecting, we need to create a culture. I mean, in uh, Asian societies, in India, China, Japan, there's a much better respect for elders. In our um, modern uh, European and, and a kind of industrial societies, we have a kind of cult of the youth, the young. So even in uh, broadcasting, if you get 50, 60, you, you are sort of sidestepped side or, or, or sort of you, say you are no longer um, attractive enough. Uh, so even there, so I would like to say, have a sort of change of consciousness, change of culture where we respect the elders and, and respect their contribution because up to the last breath of life you can make contribution. There's, there's nothing, nothing wrong. In, it's good to be older. It's good to be older. So older people should not feel inferior. They should, it's good to be older. I will continue doing things and teaching and, and looking after children, telling stories to grandchildren. All those things can be done. So it's a kind of change of culture that we need. And I, I, I'm glad to say that in African, Asian countries, there's a much more uh, respect for elders than uh, in European countries. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, so, Satish, thank you very thank much you indeed for your heartfelt... <laughs>